Hello, and welcome to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, brought to you by the North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association. I'm your host, Matt Abel. Hello, Squeaky Clean listeners. Welcome to the 66th episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, where we bring you the latest in North Carolina clean energy news, policy, and more every two weeks. On today's episode, we have an incredibly special guest who's truly hitting the ground running on their leadership in the clean energy space here in North Carolina, who's going to shed some light on what we can expect for clean energy deployment and funding over the next five plus years in the state. We're also going to take a deep dive into NCSEA's Women in Clean Energy program with its new leader towards the end of today's episode. But as always, before we get into the details, we've got a few updates. First on the list is net metering. As you may recall, back in November, a settlement agreement was filed at the North Carolina Utilities Commission proposing a new era of net metering here in the state of North Carolina. As some quick background and context, it's worth noting that provisions in both HB 589 and 951 outlined a requirement to revisit net metering in the state by 2027. Therefore, we as a state are required to take a look at the compensation structure and evaluate the most ideal path forward. Well, you can quickly look at other states across the U.S., including California, Nevada, Arizona, and New Mexico, in which those markets have completely eroded or attempted to erode net metering, leading to long litigated battles over the future of the rooftop solar industry. So, with the 2027 deadline on the calendar, NCSEA, the Solar Energy Industries Association, Sunrun, and the Southern Environmental Law Center on behalf of Vote Solar and the Southern Alliance for Clean Energy proactively engaged the utility to identify a solution to ensure solar customers were still receiving adequate compensation for the benefits they are providing to the grid while also opening the door for additional clean energy technologies like EVs and energy storage. With that being said, the parties came out to a collective agreement that included a number of pieces, such as an upfront 36 cent per watt incentive for new solar customers, along with bill credits for participating in the smart thermostat program and the implementation of time of use rates to better manage consumption with appropriate price signals. Moving towards this model further walks us down the path of electrification and decarbonization as it helps the utility better manage load, thereby potentially preventing new natural gas peaker plants. It incentivizes homeowners to consider whole home electrification and provides a tangible compensation structure for storage and EVs. The latest status update is that the proposal is still in front of the North Carolina Utilities Commission awaiting potential approval. However, it's also important to note that the Attorney General's office jumped into the conversation in the past week or so, advocating for a delay to the ruling until a larger study has been conducted regarding the overall benefits of customer-sided generation and how it can help to meet carbon reduction goals. For a full recap of where we stand, we'll include a link to the latest story from Canary Media and a link to a post on NCSEA's blog. And lastly, a quick reminder about a few events we have coming up here at NCSEA. Women in Clean Energy is reconvening with our first networking reception of the year, taking place at the UNC Clean Tech Summit over in Chapel Hill on March 29th. If you haven't been a part of the Women in Clean Energy Network in the past, this group fosters a community for women to network with and support one another through camaraderie and mentorship. The reception will take place the first evening of the conference and is free for everyone to attend, 
men and women alike. You don't have to attend the conference to attend the reception, but Weiss attendees do receive a discounted registration to the conference. More info and registration can be found via the link in the show notes. We'll also have a short interview at the end of this episode with the leader of the Women in Clean Energy program to talk more about the event and what to expect of the group moving forward. And just this week, NCSCA announced the dates for our 2022 Making Energy Work conference. The conference will take place from October 25th through 27th, right here in Raleigh. For those that may remember, NCSEA used to host this conference on an annual basis, and now we're bringing it back. Making Energy Work is the premier clean energy policy conference here in North Carolina, set to talk about all the current happenings and future possibilities in clean energy policy and regulation. More information about the conference will be released shortly. Stay up to date on all the latest announcements by subscribing to the podcast and CSEA's newsletters and by visiting makingenergywork.com. And lastly, coming up April 26th and 27th here in Raleigh at NC State University is the 2022 State Energy Conference hosted by NC State University and the North Carolina Clean Energy Technology Center. The State Energy Conference provides actionable insight into the business of energy, connecting technical innovation, diverse resources, and industry opportunity to help drive North Carolina's regional energy economy forward with national impact. This conference by far is one of my favorite in the region. And to add to my enthusiasm about the conference, the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast will be recording a live session as part of a plenary on Tuesday, April 26th, in which we'll be talking to energy reporters at the national and regional level, including David Borax of WFAE, Elizabeth Oots of Energy News Network, and Catherine Morehouse of Politico. So if you haven't yet registered to attend this year's conference, make sure to visit ncenergyconference.com. And before we dive into today's episode, I wanted to make sure to take a chance to pause and recognize all of the people behind the scenes that make the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast possible. For every single episode that comes live to your ears, there are a number of NCSEA team members, partners, and others outside of our organization that make each episode possible. In particular, I wanted to make sure to give NCSEA's Executive Director Ward Lenz a shout out for today's episode for helping to make this interview possible. There are a number of others on the team that help with background research, that help with promotion, social media graphics, anything and everything in between. And so I wanted to make sure to take this time to recognize all of the hard work for everybody who makes each of these episodes possible. Okay, on to the show. On today's episode, we're joined by someone who is shaping the landscape of clean energy here in North Carolina in so many different ways. We're diving in and talking about the role of state government in reaching an affordable, accessible, clean energy future for all. Specifically, we'll be talking about the significant momentum we're seeing towards deployment through funding mechanisms like VW settlement funds, infrastructure funding, and other federal funding sources available to the state of North Carolina, while highlighting the strides we've made here in the state through legislation, executive orders, and workforce development. Okay, and with that, let's just get into today's episode. Clean energy. Our guest on today's episode serves as the Secretary of the Department of Environmental Quality, a role in which she serves as the first woman confirmed in DEQ's history. Governor Roy Cooper named her to this role in June 2021. As Secretary, she oversees the state agency whose mission is to protect North Carolina's environment and natural resources. 
The organization has offices from the mountains to the coast and administers regulatory and public assistance programs aimed at protecting the quality of North Carolina's air, water and land, its coastal fisheries, and the public's health. The secretary's appointment marks a return to the department. She previously served as the director of legislative and intergovernmental affairs when the agency was known as the North Carolina Department of Environment and Natural Resources. During her tenure in that position, she played a primary role in securing $134 million in funding for the design and construction of the Green Square Complex in downtown Raleigh, which includes the Leeds Certified Central Offices for DEQ. She most recently served as the president of Bizer Strategies, LLC, and the senior policy advisor of the Recycling Partnership. Previously, she was the vice president of policy and public affairs of the Recycling Partnership and the government relations and policy advisor of Brooks, Pierce, McLendon, Humphrey, and Leonard, LLP. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome DEQ Secretary Elizabeth Beiser to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. Secretary Beiser, welcome to the pod. Thank you. It's great to be here with you, Matt. We're so excited to have you on board. You've you've been in this role just a little shy of a year now. Governor Cooper nominated you last June, but you've had a long and robust career in the environmental and clean energy space, including as the Director of Legislative and Intergovernmental Affairs with the Department of Environmental and Natural Resources from 2006 to 2010. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and what excites you about your role in leading up the North Carolina Department of Environmental Quality? Sure. Well, you mentioned my history with the agency and having been with Diener previously as legislative director, I really came to love both the issues that the agency deals with and the smart, dedicated folks that work at the department. It was an exciting time. We rewrote the state solid waste laws. We put in place an electronics recycling program and other efforts to boost recycling across the state, responded to a major drought in 2007, built our Raleigh headquarters, known as the Green Square Building, among many other things. It was actually this work that put me on a path of working from the outside to help advance the transition to clean energy and also to help move towards a more circular economy through my work with the Recycling Partnership which is a national nonprofit that works with companies and communities to strengthen public recycling programs. I was also with the department back then through the first of many rounds of budget cuts, which was very difficult. So I am grateful to Governor Cooper for the opportunity to be back at the department at a time that we're seeing record investment in the work of the agency. I am so excited to be back when we can think creatively about what the future of DEQ needs to look like in order to effectively serve the needs of our growing state. And yeah, I'm really focused on how do we modernize our processes? How do we make it easier for stakeholders to interact with our agency? Focus on our role of aiding the transition to a clean energy future, along with making sure that we as a state are resilient in the face of what is already a changing climate. We're also really focused on effectively responding to PFAS, which is a threat to our state's waterways and people. And we want to do all of this while making sure that we're staying true to our mission, which is providing science-based environmental stewardship for the health and prosperity of all North Carolinians. So doing this in a way that's really equitable and making sure that all parts of North Carolina benefit from a clean environment. So you talked about engaging stakeholders and making sure you're doing it in an equitable fashion. We'll talk a little bit later in our conversation about Executive Order 246, which hits on a lot of that 
So I'm really excited to get to that part of the conversation. But before we get there, at a high level, can you tell us a little bit more about your agency's priorities as it relates to clean energy? Sure, Matt. We are really working hard to support Governor Cooper's agenda and goals for that just and equitable transition to a clean energy future, which includes, as you know, carbon reduction targets for the power sector in that bipartisan energy legislation, House Bill 951, that passed last year, and also building on success of EO 80 and looking at EO 246 as well. Um, For the last couple of years, we've been implementing recommendations from the state's clean energy plan. Um, And that was a process that built a consensus vision among stakeholders from across the state about what that looks like. Um, So to give you a few examples of what we're doing, um, our state energy office is supporting programs like community solar to expand access to renewable energy for those residents who don't have the resources for rooftop solar. Our weatherization program uh, works with low-income residents to reduce their energy burden and also to improve their energy efficiency. One program that I am particularly excited about is we've partnered with NCA&T University, Appalachian State, and East Carolina to support about 40 students in the clean energy workforce development. And this is giving high school, community college, and university students that are coming from underserved backgrounds the opportunity to get hands-on training and education in jobs that help it transition to a clean energy future. So energy efficiency and solar and battery storage um, solutions. And in fact, NCANT told us that the student interest in their program for this year has already tripled over last year's enrollment. So we are so excited to see the energy of young people in our state to get into these fields and and fill these jobs that are needed. Uh, So we've got a lot more we could talk about ranging from energy um, efficiency improvements in state buildings to EV adoption. I know we'll get some more time to talk about that. But all of this is in partnership with our sister agencies uh, because it doesn't just fall in DEQ. The Cooper administration is very focused. We make sure that we're taking a whole of government approach uh, to addressing climate change and transitioning to a clean energy future. And, you know, to your point about working with the universities, um, just earlier this year, that we talking back again about Executive Order 246, that w- announcement was made at NCANT State University, the largest HBCU in the country, um, and and a lot of students that are graduating from that school are moving into the clean energy economy. With you know the number of jobs that we have available here in North Carolina as a, a nationwide leader in the clean energy space, you know we're number four now in in solar, and we're growing in electric vehicle manufacturing. We've had so many fantastic announcements this year from companies like Toyota and Arrival, companies that are really interested in investing in North Carolina and building that clean energy workforce here. And really investing in workforce development is a fantastic way to feed that talent into these companies in the state. So uh, another area that the Cooper administration has prioritized here in in North Carolina, speaking of electric transportation, um, is, is building out Uh, EV charging infrastructures and communities all across our state. One piece to that puzzle is the distribution of funds as part of the large nationwide $2.8 billion settlement agreement reached in 2017 with Volkswagen for their emissions cheating scandal, of which North Carolina was set to receive about $92 million. So DEQ has been managing the process to date of distributing millions to fund new EVs, transit and school buses and charging infrastructure. There's still a significant amount of funding available to build out the EV future here in the state. 
So what role does DEQ play in distributing those funds and what areas are the agency prioritizing right now? Great. Well, DEQ is the agency responsible uh, for the process to distribute those funds under the settlement agreement. And we're doing that through our division of air quality. In phase one, we awarded $28 million for 172 vehicle replacements, uh, which included 111 school buses and 16 transit buses. A number of those, 11 of the transit buses and six of the school buses were fully electric. The Easter Band of the Cherokees actually just last week held a ribbon cutting for the state's first electric school bus. We are so proud that a VW grant helped make that possible. We're so proud of them for being the first in the state to do that. Another 3.4 million went to charging infrastructure. So that included 27 DC fast charge stations and 78 level two stations. Um, and right now we're in phase two. Um, 67 million will be available in total. 27 million for school buses, 13 million for transit buses. And those vehicles make up about 60% of the funding with priority being given to electric replacement projects. So I'll say if there's any public sector or nonprofit organizations or public-private partnerships that are listening, we're taking applications for those now. Uh, we want to get some great applications in. We want to see more fully electric buses on the road. Um, and we're doing additional outreach to counties that didn't apply in phase one and counties that have higher rates of underserved communities. We also are using 15% of the funding, which is more than $10 million for charging infrastructure. So that's the maximum allowed by the settlement agreement and almost triple the amount we had available in phase one. So right now we're also taking applications for DC fast chargers along priority corridors. So we're trying to encourage chargers along the key travel routes in the state and for coastal evacuation routes. So we want to help folks overcome range anxiety and make sure that we've got charging where folks need it the most. Uh, there's also going to be additional opportunities any day now for level two chargers. So look for that here soon. And for the charging infrastructure grants, businesses can apply as well as the public sector and nonprofits. Um, and we got information on our website. I'll give a shameless plug. We want to see a lot of folks apply for this. We are so excited to be able to invest um, this funding in expanding our charging network in the state. We need charging stations in rural communities, not just in our metro areas, which will be critical to getting a wider swath of our population adopting EVs um, and meeting those targets that the governor set out in EO246. Um, transportation is the largest contributor to emissions. So this is an area where we can really make some headway on our climate goals and for health outcomes in our communities. And I'll just add, Matt, that I'm an EV driver myself. So this is something that I am very passionate about. I understand how important it is when you're traveling to be able to find those areas to charge. And so our goal is to make sure that folks have those charging stations available um, and we get more folks driving EVs on the roads in North Carolina. A couple of things that I wanted to react to there. Um, so the the event last week out in uh, Western North Carolina, in which uh, the announcement was made that the Eastern Band of Cherokees are rolling out uh, an EV bus. Exciting. Uh, we also had former DEQ secretary and now EPA administrator Michael Regan back in the state for that event as well. So really, really excited to see um, EV buses on the road here in the state. And then you just talked about uh, transportation-related emissions being the largest source of emissions here in the state, uh, which is part of the findings of DEQ's recent greenhouse gas inventory, and which we'll talk about in just a minute as well. 
But to your point about funding, there's also some other funding sources coming down the road here in North Carolina. And as many of our listeners probably know and are excited about, just last fall, the federal government passed the Federal Infrastructure Bill allocating several billion dollars for North Carolina communities. So what are the next steps towards distributing those funds here in the state over the next couple of years? Well, Matt, this is a transformative amount of money coming into the state for investment in communities. We're really excited about it. Between the infrastructure bill and the American Rescue Plan, um, we're seeing just the most investment in a generation in infrastructure throughout the state. So just for the first year for the infrastructure bill, it will include more than $200 million for drinking water and wastewater projects. $90 million of that is to replace lead service lines, and more than $25 million will address PFAS contamination in drinking water. This is money that's really needed across the state, and we're very excited to help um, get these funds out to where it's needed. Over the next five years, there's also more than $100 million for EV charging infrastructure in the state, which is going to our sister agency, DOT. Um, that is, you know, just to, for comparison's sake, we just talked about VW settlement. Phase two is $10 million, and we're excited. Yeah, that's a lot of money. This is another $100 million to come help with that charging infrastructure. We also have a significant amount of money for state energy program and weatherization program. There's money for grid resilience, and there's competitive grant opportunities, which we're going to try to maximize uh, to make sure North Carolina gets as much investment as possible. So it's a rare opportunity to invest in our future. All of that is on top of the $1.6 billion in American Rescue Plan funding for water and wastewater projects. So we're really focused on how do we invest this money in the most impactful way possible to make sure we're addressing the key issues in our state and that it, the money is getting to the communities that need it the most. A lot of it is going to go through processes that already work well. The weatherization program is one good example of that. Another is the State Water Infrastructure Authority. And I'm going to talk about the ARPA funding for a moment because we're further along in that process that was allocated in last year's budget. We're moving quickly. Um, They are right now, um, our Division of Water Infrastructure is taking applications for the first round of funding. Uh, We want to make sure that we're, as we're moving quickly, we're also um, considering equity, making sure that we're using this funding in a way that invests in the communities that need it the most. As an example of that, we're actively looking for projects that connect underserved or disadvantaged communities to water and wastewater service. So you had mentioned lots of funding available for EV charging infrastructure, which is really exciting and I think is an important step factored on top of all the funding that's already been released in North Carolina as part of the VW settlement. This is an important piece to reaching the governor's goal of 1.25 million EVs on the road by 2030. So really excited to see the funding coming to support those goals here in the state as well. So a little bit earlier, we we also briefly mentioned House Bill 951 that passed last year in the state, uh, that bipartisan piece of comprehensive energy legislation, which included a number of provisions focused on clean energy and energy in general. Specifically, we saw the codification of carbon reduction goals outlined in North Carolina's Clean Energy Plan, which was 70% carbon reduction by 2030 and carbon neutrality by 2050. So overall, can you tell us a little bit more about DEQ's role in ushering in the future of clean energy here in the state as part of 951 and as part of the governor's goals in general? Sure. Well, as you mentioned, you know, House Bill 951 contains those areas from the Clean Energy Plan that had bipartisan agreement. Uh, It's a significant step forward. Um, And the most important of those being, as you mentioned, Matt, the 70% reduction in carbon emissions from the power sector. Um, A lot of that work 
is going to fall to the Utilities Commission. DEQ is supporting the Utilities Commission um, as they evaluate the carbon plan. You know, at the same time, we're also working to implement recommendations from the Clean Energy Plan to help make, meet those goals, making sure that we're reaching the goal of 40% reduction in energy use for state government buildings, as an example. We're also the regulatory body for offshore wind projects and EO218, uh, which is setting offshore development targets uh, for 2.8 gigawatts off the North Carolina coast by 2030 and 8 gigawatts by 2040. Um, so achieving those goals will power roughly 2.3 million homes by 2040. So there's a lot of moving pieces of this, um, and it, we're working across the administration to help make sure that we're all moving towards that clean energy future. And I know there's a lot of excitement around offshore wind development here in the state, just given the enormous economic potential that it could bring for manufacturing and the supply chain all throughout North Carolina. So excited to see us kind of usher in that next era of clean energy, looking at development off the coast of the state as well. So we also talked about earlier, just a little bit, uh, DEQ's greenhouse gas inventory that was released earlier this year, which showed that we've seen net greenhouse gas reductions of 23% since 2005, along with the fact that transportation is now the largest source of emissions here in the state. What do these numbers tell us about where we've been and where we're going? The inventory shows us, Matt, that we're focusing our reduction efforts in the right areas. But it also shows us the status quo isn't going to get us to our goals. Um, before we jump into the inventory, I want to take a step back for a minute. North Carolina has always been a leader, has been a longtime leader in this area of making sure that we're cleaning up our air and that we're addressing emissions. It's the 20th anniversary of the Clean Smokestacks Act this year, one of the most landmark pieces of legislation, environmental legislation the state's ever seen. And that really served as a foundation of not only getting our air cleaned up, but also petitioning TVA to get their air cleaned up that was coming into our state. Um, and the mountain tourism economy is better for it. Our health is better for it. The environment's better for it. One of those great success stories that we're looking to build off of. Going back to the greenhouse gas inventory, um, the snapshot of the greenhouse gas emissions helps us to benchmark our progress so far. Um, and in that way, it's a reminder of what we already know. It's a reminder that we still have more to do. But like you said, it does validate that need for a focus on the transportation sector because it is the largest sector of greenhouse gas emissions in the state. And so goals like those that are outlined in Executive Order 246 are going to help us really address this needed area. The transportation sector is the largest emitter, but it is projected to decrease emissions at a much lower rate compared to projected decrease in electricity generation emissions by 2030. So it's important that we're addressing it. The inventory also sees that North Carolina has got tremendous potential in offsetting carbon emissions through its land and forest resources, perhaps some of the highest in the nation, actually. And our focus on resiliency will help support those efforts as well. Uh, so it's it, this inventory is one that gives us a great snapshot, um, but, but again, kind of points us in the direction of where we should be focusing our attention to have the biggest impact. And I believe the, the inventory will be updated every two years. So it'll be really interesting to see how it continues to progress uh, over the coming decade or so and where we're really cutting down on emissions here in the state. And, you know, hopefully through legislation like HB 951, we're really able to make impacts in the electricity sector and through some of the goals we've established with EVs here in the state, we make some big impacts within the transportation sector as well. And it'll be really interesting to revisit those numbers come the end of this decade. 
So Secretary Beiser, you were just at the beginning of this year at an event over at NCANT State University helping to announce Executive Order 246 signed by the governor, which outlined greenhouse gas reduction goals and ZEV goals and a number of other provisions, including a greenhouse gas inventory and a focus on environmental justice and equity. Can you tell us a little bit more about what was outlined in this executive order and why it was important to include such a strong focus on equity and diversity? Sure. So EO246 reinforces our commitment to a clean energy economy um, and directs the next steps in the state's plan to achieve net zero greenhouse gas emissions while creating economic opportunities for North Carolinians across the state, especially in underserved communities. Um, It builds on the success of EO80 and House Bill 951 and sets our emission reduction goal to 50% statewide by 2030 and achieving net zero greenhouse gas emissions as soon as possible, but no later than 2050. You mentioned the increase in zero emission vehicles. Um, It calls for an increase to 1.25 million by 2030 and for half of all sales of new vehicles in North Carolina to be zero emission by 2030. It also has our um, sister agency, DOT, developing a clean energy transportation plan. But just as important as those clean energy goals are is making sure that the benefits reach every community in our state as we're advancing our energy and climate goals. So it does direct a number of items for state agencies to take on, including considering environmental justice when they're taking actions related to climate change, resilience, and clean energy, making sure that we have an environmental justice lead in every agency, and developing a public participation plan to improve communication and transparency with the public, but particularly with underserved communities. I think sometimes there is a you know, folks here, environmental justice and DEQ, but really this is something that every part of the administration has a piece in. And I think that's really what you're seeing through this executive order. Um, I can tell you at DEQ, the public engagement and input from community stakeholders as a result of our work on environmental justice have broadened the perspectives and the conversations that are informing our agency's actions, um, which is really making us a better agency and helping us to respond more effectively to the people that we're serving. Um, It's been a great thing for us. I'm excited to see this um, expand throughout state government. It also calls for an expansion of the apprenticeship programs that I mentioned earlier, making sure that every community, again, has access to clean energy jobs and the economic benefits that come along with that transition to a clean energy future. So it's exciting to see these next steps. um, And I think that this focus also on making sure that Um, communities aren't left behind, that they're experiencing those benefits as we transition is really a a pivotal and critical point of that executive order. Exciting to say the least. And I'm incredibly grateful of your leadership at DEQ in helping to, you know, usher in some of these provisions and really focus on ensuring no communities are left behind here in North Carolina as we move into the, the clean energy future in the state Secretary Beiser, it was such a pleasure getting to talk to you today, learn more about your agency's priorities as it relates to clean energy and all of the work that your team has cut out for you over the course of next year and this year and the remainder of this decade. So um, again, we really, really appreciate your time today on the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much for having me. And before we fully wrap up the conversation, As you heard, DEQ is responsible for administering a number of programs and funding sources here in the state over the next few years to help usher in the clean energy transition. As part of that responsibility, 
they'll be ramping up their own staff to manage all of those programs. So the secretary wanted to make sure to plug those opportunities as well. It's going to take a lot of people uh, to make this happen. And um, we need good, dedicated, smart folks to join a great, dedicated, smart workforce here at VEQ. And so uh, we're hiring. We're hiring for tons of positions. There are so many advertisements out there right now. Um, so if you know of anybody, if you are interested in working at DEQ, um, please let us know. We would love to have you. And we're coming at you with a two-parter today because we're also lucky enough to be featuring one of my colleagues here at NCSEA to talk about the Women in Clean Energy program. And squeaky clean listeners, I am so excited to welcome on my esteemed colleague here and lead on the Women in Clean Energy initiative, uh, Dr. Rita Joyner, so otherwise known as Dr. J. Dr. J, welcome to the podcast. And uh, just for our listeners, do you mind just quickly introducing yourself and uh, how you you know came about in, in joining the organization here at NCSEA? Well, hello, my fellow colleague NCSEA, and welcome to all of the squeaky clean folks out there in we won't call this radio land, but uh, it feels like I'm on the radio. Uh, and, and thank you for having me here today. I will start out by just saying for myself, I've been in the clean energy space for quite a while. Uh, I actually started uh, back in 1982. I was doing the, the math on that, and it's quick math. It's been a long time. Uh, but as a graduate student at North Carolina A&T State University, uh, I was part of a Center for Energy Research and Technology grant uh, where we looked at small and medium-sized businesses and the energy efficiency measures that could go into a business to help uh, with their utility bills. And as I did that, it, it struck me. Uh, always been concerned about the earth, and uh, I'm a lifelong recycler. Uh, I'm a lifelong reuser and reducer. So leaving graduate school, I actually did a stint at Xerox Corporation that taught me how to be a team leader, how to be a team player. Left there and went to Potomac Electric Power Company. And that's the conversation that you and I had about uh, net metering and time of use metering. I was actually hired there as a customer service engineer. And my job at that point was to reach out to residential customers in the Potomac Electric Power Company uh, jurisdiction and taught them about joining the time of use metering um, program and explaining to them exactly what it was. So in moving forward, moving forward, I actually stayed in the energy field, coming back to North Carolina from out of Washington, D.C., and I had the good fortune of joining the state energy program in the state energy office. Uh, worked my way there to become section chief uh, of the state energy office. And the state energy program is a DOE funded program, but on the state energy program side, they look at uh, energy efficiency for commercial, industrial, larger size users of, of, of utility services and programs. Then 
left again, came back into the energy space. And this time it was to uh, be section chief of the Weatherization Assistance Program, still a DOE funded program, but focuses on our low income people and the energy efficiency measures that could be put uh, into homes and apartment dwellings to you know, circumvent any energy burdens and uh, some of the things that lower middle income, particularly low income people have to contend with uh, from an energy perspective. And so here I find myself uh, at the North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association. And my role here is senior advisor, helping all of the teams at NCSCA meet their goals. But more importantly, I have two major roles. Uh, The first one is to be the stakeholder representative on the Energy Conservation Building Code Ad Hoc Committee. And the one that we'll talk about uh, today is the Women in Clean Energy Initiative. And it actually, we say WISE for short, Uh, The WISE initiative launched in 2017, and it was uh, brought together to be a safe haven for women uh, to network and support each other. And in coming up with the strategies for how we're going to move WISE forward, for me, I want WISE to be a place of sense of belonging uh, for women Uh, who want to be members, who have been members, but as we are also attracting more women into this space because clean energy is growing. So uh, one of the things I also talk about is this new school, old school aspect of clean energy. We'll talk about that when we get into the next part. But the one thing that will separate WISE from other women's energy programs across the state and nation is that we are free. This is a free membership to uh, be part of WISE. And also, our emphasis is on clean energy. So there are other women's energy groups across the nation and the world, matter of fact. But our main focus and our primary focus is women in clean energy. And also, as a note, we also encourage our male allies to spread the good news of WISE. And and. I count myself as one of those. I've been to a number of Weiss events in the past, which have been phenomenal. And, and Weiss has been a incredibly successful initiative with over 500 women uh, that identify as being part of the Weiss network. So if somebody is interested in getting engaged with this group and going out and meeting their fellow um, women in clean energy, what are, what are the upcoming opportunities for them to do so? Well, the pressing and the most important one for me right now is that anyone who is interested in women in clean energy is cordially invited to join us uh, on March 29th. Uh, at the Friday Center in Chapel Hill, we will have what we're calling our Women in Clean Energy Kickoff 2022 Networking Reception. The good news is that it's going to be held in conjunction with the UNC Clean Tech Summit for this year. And the Clean Tech Summit event is the 29th and the 30th. So the networking reception will be that evening from 5.30 to 7.30, again, at the Friday Center. And we just imagine that it's going to be a space for not only networking amongst women in clean energy, but because uh, the summit participants are also encouraged to attend the networking reception, we'll just have a 
a whole space in the Friday Center of all clean energy, all things clean energy. Uh, we look forward to networking. And what I put on Instagram was, I look forward to meeting everyone there. And we're going to have what I'm calling an old school, new school, clean energy networking reception. And because there's women who have been in the clean energy space for a long time. And again, if you do the math, uh, I've been in clean energy for a while and I have several friends and colleagues that I'm now getting reintroduced to or reconnecting with, which is so important for me. But at the same time, I'm meeting new and young women who are just coming into the clean energy space as young professionals, and we want to encourage uh, them to network together. And I do have a secret, um, how do you say this, agenda <laughs> for doing the old school, new school, because one of the aspects that Weiss has been very successful in is a mentoring program. So what we want to do is it will also have a 2022 uh, networking kickoff. And this will be a first opportunity to get the old school, new school in the same room. And we can start putting together some of those mentor, mentee slash protege uh, connections. Well, I, for one, am very much looking forward to the event on the 29th at the UNC Clean Tech Summit. If if anybody listening is interested in attending this free reception, you can go to NCSEA's website, energync.org and click down to our events page and you'll find the registration. Uh, so just register for the event and we'll look forward to seeing you out at the Friday Center on March 29th. My key takeaway from today's episode is the importance of an agency like the Department of Environmental Quality in ensuring that North Carolina is well-equipped to take advantage of the funding opportunities available from the federal government along with other pools of funding like the VW Settlement. It's exciting to see the agency so eagerly embrace this role to ensure communities from all across the state are able to tangibly see the results of this funding, from new EV chargers to electric school buses to new water infrastructure. It's going to take a village to ensure these funds are spent in the right place and help the state meet its own clean energy-related goals. But DEQ is up for the challenge. Make sure to stay tuned for future episodes of the podcast where we'll continue to provide updates on the status of these funding sources and where you can apply. And you know the deal. Let's stay in touch on Twitter. Give me a shout at Matt Abel for future episode ideas, questions for our next episode, thoughts on today's episode, and your worst energy joke one-liners. And episode 66 of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast is in the books. But before you leave, don't forget to rate, subscribe, and share the pod on whatever platform you're listening in from. Sharing this podcast with your network and growing the friends of the pod helps us get just a little bit closer to our shared vision of a clean energy economy for North Carolina. All right, that's it. See y'all later.